start on a new sermon series called Come and Something. So this morning I'm going to be talking from John chapter 1, 35 to 51. If you have a, your Bibles, uh, start turning to it. John chapter 1 from verse 35. And next week, uh, we'll talk about come and rest. Then following that, come and drink. And uh, the fourth and the last one is come and follow. And I don't have a scripture text there because if I give one, to my chairman and elder Edwin, he will say, oh, very stressful. So now I will give him more stress. You choose your own text. Okay. Right, John chapter 1 from verse 35 to 51. Let me read the text. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew. Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, So you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly I say to you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, John the Baptist has just publicly identified Jesus as the Lamb of God. And this passage that we read records the calling of Jesus' first disciples, Andrew, Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel. Two of them followed Jesus, and Jesus turned around to them and saw them following. And then he asked, What are you seeking? Now, Jesus wasn't quite like some, I don't know, in the movies you see this Zen master who will utter something very mysterious and, and very highfalutin with his back turned towards the people he's speaking to. Like, you know, you watch the Taiwanese movies or soap operas and be staring out the window and they'll be talking to somebody behind them. Jesus didn't do that. He turned, he faced them and he talked to them and he looked at them. And because you are worth his attention, you know, in the military, I used to, in, in one job, 
I had to attend cocktail functions practically at least three times a week. And you mix around the cocktail, and then as you're talking to somebody, you're looking for somebody else to talk to, somebody more worthy of your attention, you know, somebody that you need to get more information out of in a cocktail circuit. And, but Jesus wasn't like that. He looked at the people, and you will read, uh, you have already read, I saw you, I saw you many times. And then Jesus asked, what are you seeking? And the two disciples answered with another question. He says, where are you staying? It's a bit odd that when Jesus asked, what are you seeking? They would ask, where are you staying? Now, maybe it's like, like they just didn't know what to say. Just say whatever came out of their, their mouth. Just say something. Or it could be they wanted to check out his home to see whether or not this Messiah, this Lamb of God, lived in District 10, or whether he had a private jet, or he only had a borrowed donkey. Or they may be looking at the time and the position of the sun, and it was getting late. The Bible says it was a tenth hour. Now always remember, tenth hour, you always plus six, so it becomes 1,600 hours, it's 4 p.m., right? So it was getting late in the evening, and they wanted to stay with him, where are you staying? And so that they could have a long chat. It could be one or any of all, all, all these reasons. But first, Andrew, one of the disciples, brought his brother Simon and brought Simon to, to, to Jesus and said, come and see, come and see the Messiah. Later, Philip brought Nathaniel to Jesus. And again, he says, come and see. And later on in John chapter 4, which we did not read, in the story of Jesus meeting the Samaritan woman at the well, the one who have had five husbands, the Samaritan woman brought the whole village to Jesus and says, come see a man who told me all I ever did. And so the sermon title, Come and See, from verse 39 of chapter 1 of John, Jesus said, come and you will see. Now I've checked many sermons online on this, on this text, and they mostly talk about how we must all be like Andrew and Philip and bring your brother and bring your friends, bring your whole village uh, to come and see Jesus. It's, it's an evangelistic uh, sermon. Uh, bring everybody, come and see, come and see Jesus. See not just the place where Jesus stays, but see Him as a person, the Messiah. See not where Jesus stays, but who Jesus is. And it reminds me of a story of a, of a Christian who was so keen to evangelize, but he didn't quite have the skills. And all he did was, every time he met this friend, he would say, have you found Jesus? And uh, day after day, he pestered this friend, have you found Jesus? Have you found Jesus? And when his friend could take it no more, he answered this question, have you found Jesus? With his own question. And his question was, where have you lost Jesus? Then I might find him for you. Now, bringing people to Jesus is critical to our faith and to our life, and, and that's how many of us uh, are here today. My good friend introduced me to Jesus, says, come and see. He gave me a living Bible, which I still have today, 42 years later. It's very important, but I want to address another aspect of the text that we, we have read. When Jesus saw Simon, he declared... In verse 42, Andrew brought <coughs> Simon to Jesus. Jesus looked at him 
and said, So you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. And Jesus foresaw a greater future for Simon than just as a fisherman. He saw in Simon a Cephas, a stone, a rock, something bigger than what Simon thought he would be all his life. And secondly, when Jesus saw Nathanael, he declared in verse 47, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit, no guile. And Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And that was quite a pronouncement because when Philip was, was talking to Nathanael about Jesus, Nathaniel was like, can something come out, good come out of this Ulu, this backward Nazareth? And I think when he finally saw Jesus, he must be thinking, oh, I just said something so politically incorrect, and Jesus is going to scold me. But Jesus says, I see you, Nathaniel. I see you. You are an Israelite with no guile, no deceit, nothing false, no false hair, no false teeth. It just means that he was a man of integrity. No deceit, no guile. And that was his pronouncement on, on Nathaniel. I saw you. And then when Jesus saw the Samaritan woman, he disclosed to her in John chapter 4 from verse 17. He says, you are right when you said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. Now, I don't think Jesus was necessarily condemning the woman for her five husbands. Instead, I think that Jesus saw this Samaritan woman through his eyes of compassion. Imagine having five husbands today, or worse still, imagine having five husbands in the days of Jesus. She must have been quite a despised woman. And then John chapter 4, verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in Jesus because of the woman's testimony. Jesus told me all that I ever did. So I think I want to turn the sermon title on his head. There's not so much come and see, but come and be seen. Come and be seen by Jesus. Now we all want to be seen. We all want to be known. There is this deep longing in every human heart that someone would know us, someone would see us, and we are not just some unknown digit operating in the world. And I believe that this explains the success of things like Facebook and Instagram. How people carefully curate their image and then post it on Facebook and Instagram so that the whole world can see and know and like them. But Jesus did all that without flicking, without clicking like. He gave Simon a new commission, a new name, Peter. He gave Nathaniel a commendation, a man without guile. And he expressed compassion for the Samaritan woman. Now, we all yearn for somebody to know us through and through, that we do not need to put up pretenses anymore, no pretensions. And we, we may well say that, yeah, we are not so comfortable uh, for something like Google to have 36 gigabytes about me or, or for Facebook to know so much about me. But what if it is not something? What if it, uh, it was someone who knows all about you 
And that someone is also the one who accepts you, who forgives you, who cleanses you, who sets you free, who blesses you. And as he gave Simon a new name, Peter, one day all of us will also have a new name. And I know this from Revelation chapter 2, verse 17. It says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. So all of us will have a new name in heaven inscribed on a white stone. And God's word is clear on this. We are known by God. God knows us. Galatians chapter 4, verse 8 onwards, it says, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to these that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? Now, when we know God and are known by God, our lives can never be the same again. We cannot turn back to the old ways. There is no turning back, as we always sing at the baptisms. And another verse, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 3, if anyone loves God, he is known by God. And while we are known by God, it is always not, not just intellectual knowledge is always in the context of love. To be known by God is to be loved by God. And again, John chapter 10, verse 3, to him the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Indeed, he calls us by name, and we will all have wonderful names inscribed on a white stone in heaven, which we will discover when we get there. Now, let me add other Christian pastors and leaders or theologians who have written on this topic of being known by God. One of them, J.I. Packer, you know, has a very famous book he wrote, uh, know, Knowing God, but this is about being known by God. J.I. Packer says this, there is unspeakable comfort in being known by God. Unspeakable comfort. John Calvin, um, much older uh, than, than J.I. Packer, says to be known by God simply means to be counted among his sons. You see, in the context of a loving father. William Manda, a theologian, also says, and, and he wrote this article with a very provocative title. He says, God doesn't know what it is like to be me. But then he continues, God doesn't know what it is like to be me, for he knows me better than I know myself. God knows the true me, the person I really am. And Richard Baxter, to be known by God, signifies to be approved and loved by Him. And consequently, that all our concerns are perfectly known to Him and regarded by Him. This is the full and final comfort of a believer. Now, man has been seeking his identity for the longest time. We want to know who we are. And we try to see ourselves. What is, what is our identity? It used to be the fingerprint that... Uh, that you have a unique fingerprint at three months old in the womb. But now we know that with DNA, you have a unique DNA at conception. And God says in Psalm 139, verse 13, and then in 16, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. 
your eyes saw my unformed substance. And God saw in you a unique identity while you were still in your mother's womb, while you were still unformed substance. God sees us, God knows us. How do we know ourselves then? How do we see ourselves? What do we do to see ourselves? We use a mirror, right? We use a mirror. And uh, it's Father's Day. I'm not sure if men do mirrors much. But if we do, I think sometimes we are very deluded, right? Because when, when people say that when a man looks at the mirror, he sees muscles. But when a woman looks at the mirror, she sees fat. What we really need is not a physical mirror. What we need is a mirror to help us see ourselves through the eyes of God the Father. And since it's Father's Day, I thought maybe I should address a little bit uh, about men and how men see themselves at the church camp. I said I sort of disputed a little bit with Dr. Robert Solomon when he said that men's primary sin is lust and women's primary sin is pride. Then I say, no, maybe men is more proud or prouder than women and maybe being very politically incorrect, I said that perhaps women's main sin is when words are many, transgression is not far away. And, uh, and then at the final sharing session of the church camp, uh, my wife nudged me, you see, uh, men also talk a lot. <laughs> so it's not just, it's just not, yeah, Unique to men or women is, is common to, to all of us. And, and let me read to you a very men's book. And it says, uh, it's Understanding Your Man in the Mirror. Uh, by this guy, Patrick Morley. He writes a lot about men's topic, uh, a Christian writer. Let me quote him. It says, If I could make only one observation about men today, it would be that men are tired, mentally, emotionally, physically, and spiritually tired, weary of life. When I make this observation at our men's seminars, it evokes as much response as anything else I say. Many heads nod in agreement while others droop to their chests. Not only are men tired, they often have a lingering feeling something isn't quite right about their lives. A man and I were talking on a plane about the challenges men face today. He said, "You, I don't get it. I'm three times as financially successful as my father ever dreamed of being but I just have this deep, nagging doubt that somehow I've missed the point. Okay, are men tired? This morning I met a lady and I said, oh, you look so tired. She said, oh yeah, I'm very tired. So again, I don't think it applies only to men, but we are tired. We work hard, but we are not blessed in what we do. And God knows how tired we are. Tired men running to death like in a rest in a rat's race or in a rat's maze. And I think the thing is because our mirror, how we see ourselves, is a worldly mirror. We compare ourselves with the world's definition of success and significance. And there are many vice, uh, uh, several verses in the Bible about, about mirrors. And let me uh, come to this. In James chapter 1 from verse 23, anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says it's like a man who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law 
that gives freedom and continues to do so, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. And so we, do we feel like we are not blessed in what we do? We are not yet looking into the perfect word of God. He will be blessed in what he does. When one only listens to the word and does not obey it, then we are the, like the person who, who forgets what we look like after we have looked ourselves in the mirror because we keep on plodding the rat's race or running around lost in the rat's maze. But if we do what God says in His Word, then we will be blessed in what we do. And what real man would not want to be blessed in what he does? But some of us don't even look in the mirror, which is symbolic of the Word of God. And then we will be in error because we neither know the Scriptures nor the power of God. Power to arrest this very tiresome lot of men. And why are some men so successful? They work very hard. They get very tired. They don't earn a lot, but they sleep well. They rest well. And they are blessed with joyful lives and happy families. And why are some people so rich and seemingly successful in the world's eyes, but their life is tiresome, toilsome? Mark Twain wrote this shortly before his death. He said this, and I quoted this so many times. But I want to read it again because it's so, so poignant. It says, A myriad of men are born. They labour and sweat and struggle. They squabble and scold and fight. They scramble for little mean advantages over each other. Then age creeps up upon them. Infirmities follow. Those they love are taken away from them. And the joy of life is turned to aching grief. It comes at last. The only unpoisoned gift of earth ever had for them, and they vanish from a world where they were of no consequence, a world which will lament them for a day and forget them forever. And that's a very sad indictment of any man or any woman's life, that you vanish and people forget about you. You're of no consequence. Talking about lamenting this, Lamentations chapter 3, verse 40 says, Let us examine our ways and test them and let us return to the Lord. And this is what we ought to do. There is innate in every man and woman a need for significance, which we sometimes interpret wrongly as success. It burns in every one of our hearts significance to make a difference, to accomplish something. And not just to scramble for little mean advantages over one another. I got promoted six months ahead of you. That kind of thing. And so many men find their significance in working for what they think is freedom. <coughs> Financial freedom, for example. You, you read it on, in the Sunday Times every Sunday. You know, I want to be financially free at 35. Then I can reti retire and do whatever I like to do. Uh, retire early to, to enjoy life. I, you struggle for, for fame, you know, to be a somebody, to be a CEO, a CFO, a CIO, a Simiaho. <laughs> Successful in something, just something. And for the future generations, you know, I have great kids I can brag about, you know, they've all gone to Ivy League universities or, or whatever. Or, or even just to be valued for something. Maybe you want to be indispensable uh, in church, you know, you want to have some some highly worthy task to do in, in church or something, but it's all from the outside in. It's, it's a worldly view. It's a worldly mirror. 
And our significance is actually upside down. It is from the inside out and not from the outside in. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 says this, But we all, with unveiled faces, beholding as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, from one degree of glory to another, just as by the Spirit of God. So it's not so much success, but significance. Not just to be successful, but to be faithful. It's about God's glory, not ours. It's the, it is to find real significance. And to do that, we need to go all the way back, back to square one, back to Genesis. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 27 says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. That beautiful, created mirror image of God was in man, but it was marred by sin. And so there is a God-shaped vacuum in all our hearts. Therefore, this, this toilsome, this desire for identity and significance. And, and we need a restoration of this image. We need salvation in Jesus we need to be beloved. We need to be favoured by God. We are precious before God. And as we submit our lives to the Lord Jesus who saves us, then we can come out of it in a restored relationship. And then we progress. We progress to, to what we, we read earlier, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, that we behold in a mirror the glory of God. We are being transformed from glory to glory by the Spirit of God. We have an unveiled face. We need not have pretensions. We mirror the glory of God from the inside out. We reflect or we, re we radiate the glory of God from the inside out. There is this transformation process that is in our heart from glory to glory. And so we ought to be able to ask ourselves, is there increasing glory? Are we being transformed from one degree of glory to another. Is the Lord in me increasing? And am I, the selfish man, decreasing? It's a key question that every man, every woman need to ask. Is it for God or is it for me? Is it for His glory or is it for my glory? And you, you, can, you can be embarking on, on, say, an MBA. And you need to ask, is this MBA for God or is it for you? It may be right for some other person to pursue an MBA and spend a lot of money doing so, but it may not be right for you. Is it okay for us to retire early? It may be right for someone else to retire early because indeed it is for God's glory, but it may not be right for you because it may be for yourself. So have we examined our lives in the light of God's mirror? We can forego an MBA we can forego a promotion or a new job, but we forego it for self because we are lazy, because we are tired. Or we can do it because it is for God's glory. When what we do is for ourselves, we enter into what is called a life of quiet desperation. We become rats running around in, in a maze. There is this book, uh, Walden is a very famous philosopher, um, Henry David Thoreau, and he wrote that the mass of men, the large majority of men, lead lives of quiet desperation. What is called resignation is confirmed desperation. And how true that is when we measure ourselves by the world's mirror. 
and striving for little mean advantages over one another. So, question is, is it for God's glory? Is it for self-glory? Nobody can answer that question except between you and God. Even for pastors, when we say we want to grow this work and start a new work there, whose glory is it for really? Is it for your own glory to be called a successful pastor? Or is it out of uh, God's calling and for God's glory? If it is for God, then it has all the significance on heaven and earth. If it is for self, we end in quiet desperation. I am doing this or that because I'm looking at a divine, at a divine mirror, the mirror of God's Word. And I do it, why? Because I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The famous verse in Galatians 2.20. So just two points in my sermon, come and be seen. Is it for God's glory? And is it with the love of God? Do we do it for the love of God? 1 Corinthians chapter 13, you know, is that great chapter that talks about Love is uh, patient, love is kind. It ends uh, like this. For now, again, it uses the word mirror. For now, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12 and 13. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And it's in the context of love, because it ends this way in verse 13. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three but the greatest of these is love. You know God, God knows you. It's in the context of love. I came across this uh, very short book. It's called The Happy Hypocrite. I think only like 42 pages. You can download it off the, off the net. Written by a guy called Max Beerbohm. Very long ago, 1897. It's a parable. Very interesting parable. And the protagonist is a guy called Lord George Hell. Okay? It's a parable. So George Hell was was a worldly man, he was a dandy, you know, he dresses himself up, powder his face, powder his hair, and he's fond of gambling, cheated lots of money uh, uh, from, from people, drinking, womanizing. I mean, it's like all the bad things, he's done. And he has a, a lover called Gambogi. But in spite of having this lover, he met a young woman, actually a virtuous woman uh, called Jenny, and he was totally infatuated with her and he loved her, and he proposed to marry this Jenny. But in a parable, this Jenny says that she will only marry a man with the face of a saint. And let me quote exactly the words. It says, Your face, my Lord, talking about George Hell, your face, my Lord, mirror, it may be true love for me, but it is even as a mirror long tarnished by the reflection of this world's vanity. And so, Lord George Hell was very disappointed that this lady would not marry him. She wandered the streets looking for something. He stumbled upon a mask maker shop and he purchased a saint's face mask to put on his face. And he changed his name from Lord George Hell to Lord George Heaven. And then he began a total moral conversion in his ways. He returned all his ill-gotten health and uh, wealth and, and uh, whoever he's cheated, he returned the money. He donated money to charity and then he bought a very humble cottage to live in, and then he proposes to Jenny, and this time Jenny agrees to marry him. One month after the marriage, as the happy couple was celebrating their 30th day of marriage, this 
old girlfriend came, Cambogie, and refused to leave until she says, I want to take a last look at your true face. And then they, they, they scuffled and she tore off the mask of uh, this Lord George. And George covered his face thinking, that, oh no, my saint mask is gone. And, um, and that Jenny will reject him this time. But it wasn't so. Because Jenny now saw that his face had assumed the contours of the mask. Indeed, he has become saintly as he lived a saintly life. And, and, and the Bible talks about this. Romans chapter 8, 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed, to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And our significance is found in the glory of God, God who is love, God who is the lover of our soul, who first loved us and gave himself for us, who transforms us from one degree of glory to another, from the inside out. You know, in this verse it says that he might, Christ, be the firstborn among many, among many brothers. And we'll talk about many brothers as on uh, Father's Day. And I came across this saying from a motivational speaker called Jim Rohn. And he says this, that you are the average of the five people you spend the most time with. Okay, we can dispute this and we can have lots of argument over this, but, but just think about this. You are the average of the five people you spend the most time with. If we spend the most time with five people or three or ten people comparing ourselves about worldly success, where would that lead us? To a life of quiet desperation. The Bible talks about how we spend our time. Let me read a few. Proverbs 17, uh, 27, 17. Iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens another. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 9. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for the toil. For if they fall... One will lift up his fellow, but woe to him who is alone when he falls and, not, and has no one to lift him up. Proverbs 18.24 A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And so, especially on Father's Day, we need a band of brothers. And we need a band of sisters for the sisters. You know, it's often said that men don't do fellowship so well. Uh, we don't hold hands to pray, although we kana that at uh, church camp. Who started that? Lady Pastor Joanne. Everybody hold hands and pray. And I think one guy came to me and, and as suggested by Dr. Robert Solomon, he was holding a, a water bottle and said, nah, hold the water bottle, don't hold my hand. You know, we, we don't... Maybe we're not comfortable with the physical touch, but we can still touch the heart, right? Among men, we can still touch the heart and we can stir the spirit of our brother as a true friend. This is my band of brothers. Okay, uh, four, elders, four elders that we have now. This was taken on the 24th of July. I had to do some research. And, 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 and 24th of July, what year? 15 years ago. 2003. So on the one hand, you can say, oh my goodness, 15 years, these faithful men are still serving. But on the other hand, it's a bit sad, right? 
We need younger elders. <laughs> How come? And I have another band of brothers, uh, nine senior pastors that we meet every month. With my elders, we meet uh, about three times, three Saturdays out of four, because there's one Saturday, there's a men's meeting. With this set of uh, nine of us, I meet them every, every month, and, and we have spiritual talk. We, we look after one another spiritually. It's not always just talk about cars and share prices and, and whatever. It's, it's spiritual. We look after one another's soul. And just in case you think that it's all about pastors and elders, uh, well, this one also got two pastors <laughs> and one elder. This is what is called the G5 with one missing. Okay, Vincent, who has gone to work in Vietnam. But, uh, and you can see why they remain spiritually strong. Because they're watching out for one another. They are known and they know one another. So men of PPH and, and women of PPH, do you have your band of brothers? Do you have people you're comfortable sharing your life with? Come and see, come and be seen, and to mutually encourage one another. Those, those you don't just go and drink with or, or eat with or, or watch World Cup with, you know? or even go to on holiday with, or, or go jogging with, or go golfing with. Those who you can have engage in sound spiritual discussion, watching over one another's souls. And I believe the acid test of this kind of band of brothers is uh, we, don't need, we don't need to hold hands. You know, we don't never, never hold hands. But we just need to lift up one another's spirit. Huh? Like yesterday, I just felt I was so unwell and the elders uh, prayed with me over breakfast. We have spiritual conversations. We worry. We worry over the church, over the flock, and we discuss affairs of the flock and our own families. Yesterday, we had a very frank discussion uh, about some of my elders are already grandfathers. Uh, we we're talking about our, our families and what some of the frustrations that uh, people have. And we pray. Most of all, we pray for one another. And we dare to ask one another tough questions. I think that's also another acid test of being a brand of brothers, to be known and to know. What are some tough questions that men can ask men and women can ask women? Uh, I've got a few here. Like, uh, have you made any decisions or taken any actions this week which compromised your Christian values? Would you ask somebody this question? Have we developed that kind of relationship of being known and knowing to see and to be seen? Have you shared your faith in what ways? How can you improve in sharing your faith? Uh, have you had any lust or flirtatious or lustful attitudes, tempting thoughts, or expose yourself to any explicit material, pornography, and that would not glorify God? And have you any told any half-truth or outright lies and, and in an effort to put yourself in a better light to those around you? Have you like put on a mask or a veiled face to make yourself look better by telling half-truths? And the best question of all is always the last question. Have you just lied to me in any of your answers today? Right? If you can do that, I tell you, you have a great band of brothers. What does the mirror of God's Word tell us today? That we find our significance in being known by God, in knowing God, of course, but more to be known by God. And this is always, always, every time Scripture refers to this, it's in the context of love. No matter our background, whatever we have done and since in the past, God knows us, 
God loves us and God wants us to grow with Him, to be conformed to the image of His Son. And we seek only that which brings glory to God. And we seek that only that which is out of the love of God, to be transformed from one degree of glory to another. And soon we will all have a new name when we are shaped into God's loving image from the inside out. Transformed from the inside out. So that's my encouragement to all of us today. Just two questions. Is it for God's glory or your own? And is it for love or not for love? And try to have a band of brothers and sisters you can talk to. And, and may, let me make a pitch for cell groups. That's a place to start. Even a cell group, then we can split the cell group into men and women, and we can discuss men's stuff and women's stuff. Okay, let me invite the music team to come. We'll uh, close with this song. I have a maker. <laughs> <laughs>